<laughs> so, two weeks ago, two weeks ago today was Valentine's Day. And one day, I was out shopping for a gift and a card for my wife, Sharon. And in the store, you can always know where the Valentine's section is because you can see the glow of the red and the pink emanating from the shelves. And I made my way over there. And as I'm looking for just the right card, I found one that had, of course, you know, roses all over the cover. And on the cover of the card, it read, to my one and only. And I opened it up. Now, on the inside of the card, more roses. It said this in, in cursive inscription. It said, you will always be my only love. I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. So I thought, not bad card. I, I laid it down as I was looking for other cards. This other guy came up next to me, and he was also looking for cards. He was probably in his mid-30s, and he found that same card that I had just been looking at, and he was reading it for a little while, and I thought, well, this is kind of cool. Another guy that values lifelong commitment, you know, un unconditional love and faithfulness. Well, that guy actually did buy that card. The problem is, he bought three of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't see that coming either. <laughs> the unexpected, the unexpected always takes us by surprise, doesn't it? The unexpected also captures our attention, just as often it took place in the Gospels. Like in the passage we're going to look at this morning, when Jesus takes a seemingly unexpected encounter with somebody and he lovingly turns it in to a transformational, powerful, holy moment as he changes the lives of those he touches. He did it then and he does it today. So as you're turning in your Bibles to our passage this morning, Luke chapter 7, we're going to look at the back half of Luke chapter 7. And in your pew Bible, that would be found on page 1609, I believe. But as you're turning there, I want to ask you to do something a little bit different. I want to ask you to imagine that you're hearing this story, this passage, for the very first time. Even if you're already quite familiar with it, I want to ask you to imagine that you don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know how this unexpected encounter is going to turn out. Try to take it in as if you're actually in the room where it's happening, where, where you can observe the action as it, it's playing out. Take in the moment, experience the drama, and feel the tension. Because my hope is, when you do, you might be better able to, to grasp what God has for everyone in that room, including us. Because I believe that he has something for us today from this, this powerful and this intimate display of how the gospel changes a life, including our own. Sound okay? Okay. So to make this even more conducive to, to taking in the moment as it happens, I'm going to actually read the scripture in increments, one or two verses at a time. And we're going to start with verse 36, Luke 7, starting with verse 36 that reads, 
Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. So let's set the background for this. Where was this? Who was this man? And and why the dinner invitation? Well, this chapter finds Jesus smack dab in the middle of his teaching ministry, his healing ministry throughout Galilee. He was going from town to town, and this happened to be a city, a town that, that Simon the Pharisee lived in. Now, Pharisees, of course, were some of the Jewish leaders of the day that took their religious regimen very seriously, and many of them saw themselves as morally elite. And by chapter 7, where we are here, there had already been a good bit of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees looked at Jesus with some resentment because of things that they had seen. They had seen him heal. They got miffed because his followers would do things on the Sabbath like pick grain because they were hungry. It crawled all over them that Jesus would hang out with people that were considered sinners as no self-respecting man of God would spend so much time in the company of people who were considered unclean. But most of all, Jesus to them was a blasphemer because he had already said that he had the authority to forgive sins. So if Jesus was persona non grata to the Pharisees, why the dinner invitation? Was, was Simon like Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. But Nicodemus sincerely came to believe that Jesus was actually sent by God. And he was genuinely interested in Jesus' teaching. Could that have been true of Simon? We don't see evidence of that in the text. It's far more likely that Simon, who, by the way, this is the only time in all of Scripture, this chapter, that he's mentioned. It's far more likely that Simon was chosen from among his skeptical Pharisee brethren as one who would try to get an audience with Jesus, to find out new ways to criticize him, ways to accuse him, and even better yet, to trap Jesus. Now, it wasn't that uncommon for religious leaders like Simon to invite into their home a traveling rabbi or a traveling teacher. In fact, this was actually one of three different times in the Gospel of Luke alone that Jesus was invited to dinner in the home of a Pharisee. Also, though, in this culture, when such a dinner would take place, there would be the host and maybe his family and a few select other guests and the guest of honor. But also, townspeople were welcome to come or they would just show up when they would hear that there would be this traveling rabbi, especially someone with the reputation already of Jesus. So people would come. They were welcome to stand around the back of the room, the edge. They couldn't speak. They weren't invited to the dinner table, but they could listen maybe from through the windows or maybe through the door or the courtyard as they'd listen to this visiting rabbi. And so picture this now. Inside the home, in the room where all this is about to happen, In the center of it is the table. Now, it wasn't a table like we think of with chairs around the edge of it. Rather, it was a table that was more low to the ground. And the people that would be sitting there, they'd actually be more reclining. You can picture Jesus along with the others there on some sort of low-to-the-ground divan or probably more of a a long cushion where he would have his, his, his head and his arms close to the table and his plate 
he'd prop himself up by his elbows. But his legs and his feet would be extending away from the tables. So with this picture in mind, this is the room where you're at. You're looking on. You're watching. You're listening. Here's what you would have seen. Verse 37. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. Who is this woman? Why would she do this? The text does not specifically say, but most commentators say that by the, the language that it used, this woman who, this sinful woman, is, it's likely that she was a local prostitute. And so you can imagine, imagine the tension that took place when she arrives. How inappropriate for her to be here. How uncomfortable it probably made other people feel. Especially when she doesn't stay back and blend in among the others, but she approaches Jesus. She comes near Jesus. And as unexpected as her entrance was, so too was the flow of tears that would happen, flowing down her face without restraint as she knelt over Jesus' feet, so much so that his feet became damp. Now, was this their first meeting? What did she know about Jesus that would create such an outpouring of strong emotion? Were they tears of sadness or were they tears of gratitude? Again, the text doesn't specifically say, but the context gives us some clues. And because of the context, I tend to believe that this was not their first meeting. As we'll soon see in the passage, that Jesus himself will refer to her expressions of gratitude and her expressions as love as connected with her experience of having been forgiven. You see, Jesus had already spent a good bit of time teaching and preaching in the towns and villages in this area. He had many opportunities to teach about the kingdom of God, repentance, forgiveness, and the Father's love. So it's quite likely that this woman had heard him speak before. Perhaps she couldn't help but be drawn to him because she had never heard such words of truth combined with grace that characterized all that Jesus did and all that he said. And as hard as it may have been for this woman to believe his words about the Father's love because of all that was in her own past, perhaps his message of grace and forgiveness broke the hardened shell off of her calloused heart. Perhaps they'd even had their own conversation. Can't you see Jesus initiating with her just like Jesus took that opportunity to speak with the woman at the well? I could see him letting this woman know that no longer did she need to be held and remain captive in her world of public sin and private shame. No longer did she have to remain captive in her, her world of false intimacy but true emptiness. Because Jesus offered her a very different kind of love. 
He offered her a love that was pure, that was healing and cleansing, an unconditional love, and with that, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of a very different future for her. So it's quite likely that at some moment before this evening, some beautiful moment, that this woman had said yes, yes to the Father's love, yes to repentance, yes to forgiveness, yes to God. And so now, here inside this home, inside this Pharisee's home, nothing would keep her from showing her love and her gratitude to her Savior. And that's exactly what she does, ignoring the glares and the condemning and shocked stares that she got from everyone else. Can you picture it? Can you picture the tension in the room as she's doing this, picture the drama? Just the, the contrasts alone, not just the contrast of the lifestyles, but the contrast of the postures of the hearts. Over here, where Simon sits, we see pride. We see contempt toward her. But over here, where this woman is bowed over Jesus' feet, we see tender humility. We see repentance. We see brokenness. Over here, we see image management that is being displayed uh, in front of all this man's friends and all the people that know him. Where over here, we see a woman who cares only about her audience of one. Over here, there's self-righteousness. Over here, there's worship that comes from a heart, a heart that has experienced the powerful truth and grace of Christ, and it's been changed. So in this moment, this moment of tension, this moment of contrast, here's what happens next. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. As only a Pharisee could do, in one fell swoop, Simon cast his judgmental verdict over both Jesus and the woman. He knew it. Jesus was, could not have been a legit prophet because no self-respecting prophet would allow such an unclean person to even touch him. She is, after all, a sinner. That's how Simon saw her. To him, the label fit. He only saw her past. He only saw her very public moral resume. He only saw her externals. Question for us. How often do we do the same thing? How often do we look at other people through similar grids where we size people up, we label them, we compare? Why do we do this? <laughs> well, trying to answer that may be a whole other sermon in itself, but I would imagine that in large measure we do this out of our own insecurity or our own pride, which the two are probably pretty closely connected. Because if we can, if we can label others, if we can put them on a level where we compare favorably, we feel better about ourselves, don't we? Human nature? Maybe. But when we find ourselves doing this, it should be like a dashboard warning light signaling us that under the hood, perhaps the power of the gospel has not completely penetrated the depths 
of our heart. We might find ourselves when we're doing that more like Simon than we want to admit. We might find ourselves at times trending over to his side of the table. But Simon, our host, he was about to get a very unexpected interruption to his judgmental thoughts. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, how do you think Simon sounded right there? Do you think he sounded sincere, teachable, eager? I think he might have sounded something like, well, tell me, teacher, because I'm really looking forward to this lesson that you're going to teach, this lesson in front of all these people about the condition of, of my heart. And maybe, maybe this lesson could get written down in the Bible so it could be on permanent display. No, I'm guessing he wasn't quite sincere or teachable. Um, but regardless, I don't believe that he anticipated Jesus' next play. I don't think he anticipated where Jesus was going to go next with this as he launches into this incredible parable. Verse 41, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? No doubt you could have heard a pin drop at this moment. The comparison of the two is obvious. 50 denarii, that was a good amount of money. That was equivalent to about two months' wage. But 500 denarii, 10 times more, that was equivalent of two years of wages. Both were substantial. This is important. Jesus makes it very clear that regardless of the differential, both of these debtors had no means or hope of repaying the debt. Jesus drops this unexpected bomb on them as when he says that the lender, for some unforeseen reason, decided to just forgive all their debts, drop all of it. Now picture yourself in that room. You haven't heard this story before. You, as the words are leaving Jesus' lips, you're probably wondering, who does that? Why would he do that? And all heads in the room turn toward Simon when Jesus asks him, Simon, who of these will love him more? Now, Simon, he knows the obvious answer to the question, right? But does he know where Jesus is going with this? Verse 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then, then he turns towards the woman and he said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? We're going to pause here. Because you pick up that he looks right at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? What a question. What a question. Was he being rhetorical? Was he making a point? Simon's thinking, of course I see her. How could you miss her? But he's saying, Simon, how do you see her? What does Simon see? He sees her past. He sees her moral scorecard. He sees her inappropriateness at even being in his home, tarnishing it by her very, very presence. That's how he sees her, with disdain, with 
resentment, and with superiority. But Jesus, Jesus sees her quite differently, doesn't he? He looks at her and sees her as she truly is. He looks in her face, straight in her face, just like he looked straight in the face of the hemorrhaging woman who was on the ground who had grabbed his cloak. And Jesus looks in her face and calls her his daughter. He looked at her in her face just like he looked into the crusted face of the leper just as Jesus reached out to touch him as part of his healing. And just like he looks in our face when we come before his throne in need of mercy, in need of grace, regardless of what is going on, in our lives and in our hearts. He sees us. He saw her. And he let Simon know that what he sees is a grateful, transformed heart that has clearly embraced her own need for forgiveness, her need for grace. These are the very things that Simon missed. They're the very things that Jesus wanted Simon to see because They're the very things that Simon himself needed. And Jesus continues, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. It's not that Jesus was personally offended that Simon didn't do these things for him. That's not the point. But the water, the kiss, the oil, these were things that were just common courtesies that a host would do for any guest when they came into their home. People would usually travel over dusty paths and roads wearing sandals, so the host would wash their feet. It's customary. A kiss on the cheek was a normal greeting. And it wasn't unusual for someone to take a drop of scented oil as a little anointing on the head. But Jesus, he wasn't offended, but he uses this comparison to further paint this portrait of the impact on her life versus his. See, she didn't put just a little bit of water to remove the dust off his feet. She poured out tears from her heart because Jesus removed the stain of her sin. She had no towel, so her hair had the honor of drying her master's feet. She didn't feel worthy of kissing his cheek, so in humility and in subservience, she kissed his feet. And instead of using a cheap, inexpensive olive oil to anoint his head, she took took her alabaster jar of expensive, costly perfume. And for the first time, she gave this perfume a very different purpose than what it had been used for before. She opened it and she anointed Jesus' feet. She was was living out the parable, a real-life picture of what it looks like when one fully understands how great a forgiveness that they needed and how great a forgiveness that they've received. And Jesus summarizes this all in verse 47 when he says, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little 
loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now this is very important because what is Jesus saying here? Because it might be easy to misunderstand. It might be easy to think that Jesus is saying that because of all this expression of love, because of this outpouring of gratitude, because of that, I'm granting her her forgiveness. She's earned it. But that's not it at all. Jesus is saying that her great love is just a proportionate expression of her gratitude because of the forgiveness that she had already received. The Greek word here for forgiven is actually in the the perfect tense, which which means that it already happened, it already took place, it's happening now, and it will continue happening. Plus, we know from the whole of Scripture that it's faith that saves us. And actually, in a couple minutes, a few verses down, we'll see that Jesus actually affirms uh, that uh, it was her forgiveness that she already had. See, she didn't come that evening seeking forgiveness from Jesus. She came to thank Jesus for it by showing her love. And boy, did she. By contrast, though, we have Simon, who for his part in the narrative, his part in this parable, apparently loves little. Question, was Simon only 10% in need of forgiveness, according to the parable? Was his debt of sin 90% less than hers? Maybe in his own mind. 50 denarii or 500? God's vantage point says that both were debts that neither could repay. Both were in equal desperation. But now she, she was free. And just like other times when Jesus would would tell someone that they're forgiven, the people in this room, verse 49, says, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? A great question. But did Jesus take the moment to answer their question? Did he try and defend himself? Did he try and prove his deity? No. No. But he did go right on demonstrating his answer to their question. He speaks eight life-giving words to this woman. Our passage here concludes this way. Jesus said to the woman, verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. No doubt. No doubt Jesus was looking straight into her face when he tells her this, letting her know that because of her faith, she is now free, free to move on in her life, free to face a new life, and free to experience a peace that she has never known before. But I would imagine that she would replay those eight words over and over in her mind and in her heart because in the days to come, in the months, and even the years to come, Don't you know that she was going to have to come back to these words in order to combat the voice of her enemy, the enemy of her soul, the voice of the accuser? Satan, no doubt, would continue whispering to her, you know who you are. You know what you've done. Look at you. You're still trash. It was going to be hard enough for her 
as she pursued her new life and her new identity in Christ, as she was going to probably daily face some of the natural consequences of the prior years. But this does not change the anchor of her new identity as a daughter of the king. Nor does it change the truth that she could go forth living a new life because she has experienced the kindness of God that leads her to repentance, as Romans says. Perhaps, perhaps there are times where you might hear these whispers, where you might hear these dangerous whispers because the enemy of your soul also wants to take back ground. Whispers that sound like, who do you think you are? You know what you've done. Who are you pretending to be? You're not worthy of peace. You don't deserve it. We hear these whispers that, are speak, that, are, that come from, as the Gospel of John calls it, Satan's native tongue, his language, his language of deception, his language of lies. And it's then that we also need to come back to the anchor of Jesus' words, just like he told that woman, that we are indeed secure, we are indeed safe, we are indeed saved if we've placed our faith in Christ and turned to him. Eight powerful words. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's how this passage ends, but the impact just began. Not just in, in her life, no doubt, but, but I would imagine also in the lives of the people that were hearing what Jesus said, that were watching what he did in that room. People like you and me. People like us. See, there's a reason I wanted you to imagine that you were right there in the room because God has things for us to take away from this unexpected encounter as well in that evening. How could we not be impacted by this woman, this woman who gets it? Now, of course, she had quite, quite a road ahead, but in what greatly matters, she gets it. She now had a new greatest love in her life. Jesus sent her out, and he sent her out with peace. She'll never be the same. And I think it's, there's a very important takeaway for all of us from what we encountered here. In light of her interaction with Jesus, there's a principle that I believe is applicable for us today, and it's this. Could it be that the depth of our worship of God is often proportionate to how deeply we embrace our own need for grace. Let me repeat that. Could it be that our own worship of God, the depth of our worship for God, the depth of our love for him, is sometimes proportionate to how deeply we embrace, how deeply we grasp our own need for grace, our own need for forgiveness? I think the two are very connected we see this played out in this passage, don't we? Because she was, because she was forgiven much. She loved much. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to express ourselves the way that she did, but I do think there's something for us to learn from her posture, the posture of her heart. Because if you're like me, there are times when, when our worship of God seems lacking where our worship of God may lack the amazement, the love, the gratitude that we saw poured out from this woman. In times like that, I take comfort from people like King David. 
King David, called a man after God's own heart, the guy who wrote most of the Psalms, the basis for many of our praise and worship songs, that guy even had times where his own worship of God seemed disconnected, where, where he seemed distant from the Lord. I take comfort in that, but I also learn from him because he didn't stop there. At even low points in his life, he went before the Lord as he did in Psalm 51, and this was his prayer. This was his request. He said to God, restore to me, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. What a great prayer. And God answered that because lasting joy comes from embracing and appreciating the mercy of God in our lives. And when we do, the richer our worship will be. That's what we saw in the woman. May we learn from how she loved and worshiped Christ. And as much as I'm impacted by this woman because she gets it, I'm also impacted in a lot of ways by Simon, who missed it. I'm sad for him. I'm sad for him because I was once a lot like him. And if God, in his grace, hadn't pursued me and hadn't reached out to me to help me see this, I would have missed it too. You see, there was a time in my life that I was like Simon because I was counting on my own moral performance as my ticket to peace with God. See, I was a very committed, church-going young man. I was consistent in living out the Christian life. I did all the things that good Christians were supposed to do, and I avoided all the things that they weren't. I was probably seen as a pretty nice guy. I don't remember anybody seeing me as a hypocrite. And I could have probably told you all about the facts, how Jesus had died for everyone's sins. And since I was a part of everyone, I, I guess that applied to me too. And yet, I really knew that I had no real peace in my relationship with God. Till one day, God gave me the grace to see something. He gave me the grace to see that to any degree that I was trusting and that I was counting on my own moral performance as part of my own salvation, that I was actually, there was actually complete blockage of my grasp of the gospel. And that's when God, in his grace, made it crystal clear to me that when Jesus went to the cross, he went for me. That if he had not gone to the cross, I had no hope. I needed the cross. I needed the cross, not one drop of Jesus' blood less than anybody else. I needed his forgiveness. I needed his grace just as much as the 500 denarii debtors that I saw around me. And I figured that if I had never really understood this before, probably I had never embraced the gospel before. And that was the day, the day that I simply transferred my trust, the trust that I had put in my own Christian morality, and I laid it at the foot of the cross. And everything changed for me that day. Not necessarily my lifestyle, because as I said, I was already behaving like Christians are supposed to do. But I saw two very real changes in my life. The first one was I finally had a very real peace with God. And the second thing was this. As I began to understand my own need for grace, I became more likely to extend grace to other people. Maybe, maybe some of us here can relate with my story. 
Maybe some of you, you've, you've worked really hard at doing all the right things. You've worked really hard at doing good. And you've, you may even know all the right doctrine. But perhaps if there's a lack of peace in your relationship with God, could it be because deep down you're putting more trust in your own moral performance than you are in the cross of Christ? If that's the case, you can go before him even now confessing that if you put any confidence in anything except for the death and resurrection of Christ, you now transfer that to his finished work on the cross. And you can embrace for yourself the same words that Jesus said to this woman at this dinner when he said, your faith has saved you. You can go in peace. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. This morning we've, we've watched as an unexpected guest encountered unexpected grace. And she showed and responded to this with an unexpected display of gratitude towards Jesus. How might we be different because of it? May God give us the humility and give us the wisdom and give us the grace to become more like this transformed woman that we would love and worship God from a deeper understanding of and an appreciation of the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy that he's given us and all that who he is and all that he's done because we have been forgiven much. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your truth and your grace. It's how you were introduced to this world when John wrote his gospel. You came in truth and grace. You displayed both. It's how you related with, with everyone you encountered. It's how you relate with us today. You pursue us. You draw us. And you change us. May we respond like this woman did. May we respond with gratitude. May we respond with love. May we respond with obedience and worship as people who rightly reflect the change that you've brought about in our life. For your glory and our good. Amen.